1: This is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Kenan Ferguson, who's the author of Cookbook Politics. This book was just released 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania Press. And it's a very interesting and fascinating exploration of cookbooks as essentially forms of political theory, um, as well as how they operate within our political sphere. But I'm going to let Kenan tell us a little bit about that first I'd like to welcome Kenan Ferguson to the New Books Network and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular and fascinating project. Hi, Kenan.
0: Hi, Lily. Um, I'm a political theorist by training. I have always focused on questions of everydayness, um, looking at the way in which people act and why they act that way and what they think about their actions. There's a a tradition in political theory that tells people how to behave. Um, We might call that normative. And that isn't my way of doing political theory. I'm actually more interested in figuring out what the theoretical underpinnings of people's ideas, behaviors, activities, and in this case, their senses are.
1: And this particular project, which obviously engages people's senses, and, and you spend a lot of time talking about why that is relevant, um, is one that looks at the idea of cookbooks, not just their existence, but how they came into being and and how they essentially do politics. Can you talk a little bit about what drew you to this concept of cookbooks themselves, and how you started to unpack their role within politics?
0: There's a um, academic answer to that, and a non academic answer. The non academic answer is that I'm really interested in the ways in which people practice and write down and do kinds of political identification and collectivity and ideology and cookbooks are just a profoundly under recognized um, aspect of that now that's not to say that there aren't some great historians of cookbooks or food studies people who work on cookbooks i really relied a lot on them but within the philosophy and the political science literature there's very little on cookbooks themselves. The more academic answer is that I was inspired a while ago to try and think through some of the ideas of the French philosopher-historian Jacques Ranciere, who came up with a concept that I've found both particularly useful and, at least in the way he uses it, slightly aggravating. He has an argument that politics, he says, is the distribution of sensibility. And most people interpret that to mean things like, well, who are the people who we see as political actors and who are the people we don't see because they're homeless or because of their race or because of their gender? Um, My problem with that is that the way in which he's usually used and the examples that he gives to explain his political theory tend to be very sight-oriented. He writes about um, arts, um, paintings, things like that, and he pays very little attention to other aspects of what is humanly sensible. So to me, cookbooks were a place where You could see into the past, into other cultures, into other geographies, and be able to read, and if you were interested in doing so, experience a sensorial product that affects your that literally affects your body in certain ways. So, in some ways, this is a book about Rancière, though there's probably fewer than. Half a dozen pages on Ranciere, um, but his thought about just uh, about aesthetics and the distribution of sensibility were part of the foundation of the book.
1: I, I did find as I was reading through it that he sort of comes in at the beginning of most of the chapters, um, and and you you sort of push against him a little bit here and there, or more than a little bit, um, by sort of filling out. Um, I think part of what your argument is are absent parts of an understanding of essentially sensibility in this sensorium, the term that he uses and that you use. Mm -hmm. Um, And can you talk a little bit about this concept of the sensorium you've already sort of started to in terms of understanding how we operate as human beings? With minds and bodies?
0: I think a lot of people in uh, political philosophy have, for a long time, had questions about the, idea, the, the, the concept that uh, minds and bodies are these separated things. I look back at a lot of feminist theory about um, a lot of mid 20th century philosophy. The, that idea that we are disembodied brains has, I think, been pretty well debunked. But the way in which people try then to theorize what kinds of beings we are has predominantly in recent years been what's often called affect theory. So it's about these ways in which the body and brain are imbricated, but in a way that comes down to reactions, to emotions, to um, the way in which thought and uh, certain kinds of embodied intensities are interlinked. What I think has been left aside in that move toward affect theory has been this concept of the sensorium, and the sensorium is the concatenation of all the senses that we have. the things that we know we are sensing so if you're looking attentively at something you're you're paying attention to it but also the things that we're not necessarily consciously aware of so the certain the, something like the weight in our bodies or the taste in our mouths or the feel of air on our skin those are all affecting those are all part of us and yet they aren't the things that people who write in affect theory um, tend to write about. So in this book, I want to make the sensorium a central, um, central locus of talking about the collective and individualized, the felt and the experienced part of human politics.
1: And, and one of the parts that you also weave into sort of this broader framework of the sensorium, the knitting together of the body and the mind, and, and sort of including a variety of senses that are not necessarily always the focus of politics or political life, is also the embedded nature of memory. Um, can you sort of weave in to this discussion a little bit about particularly the connection between food and memory and the role that cookbooks somewhat play in that.
0: I think many people, even if they haven't actually read remembrance of things past, or at least aware of the way in which for, for Proust narrator tasting a Madeline brings back Many volumes of memories that make up a, a person's life, um, there's a way in which the experiential attention to taste and sense memory um, has been anal- has been analyzed and explained by scientists, by novelists. One of the things that I think makes cookbooks particularly interesting is that they are an attempt to disembody sense memory and to transmit it for different reasons across space or time. So somebody has the experience of eating a madeleine, and they want somebody else to be able to make that madeleine so that somebody else, either the the cook him or herself or someone else can have that experience of that taste. So it's a, it's not just the intensity of memory. It's also the way in which the hope of a cookbook is that these senses can be made transmissible across families, across countries, across um, generations
1: so that the the cookbook itself is a means to essentially recreate a potential memory. Is that right?
0: Or create one. Um, or create if, one. If somebody, one of the, the examples I go into later in the book are these community cookbooks who were often put together by groups of women affiliated often with, say, a church. And, Part of what they are doing is trying to get these things that they find value in and make them accessible to others who have never experienced them. So you might find somebody uh, in one of these groups giving a copy to their daughter-in-law so that their son can experience the dishes that he uh, had growing up. That's not exactly trying to transmit to the cook a memory, but it's trying to formalize a kind of memorialization uh, for a different time and place
1: and and in sort of thinking about the the book itself that you wrote cookbook politics you 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 make a case at the beginning of the the book that this is not a linear um, sort of understanding or thinking about. Cookbooks. In fact, you make a number of cases about what the book is not. Um, it's not food studies per se, but it does integrate parts of that, um, and and so forth. Can you can you talk a little bit about um, what the book is and isn't? Sure. <laughs> um, as a structure, uh, there's
0: a lot of people who have looked at food for a variety of reasons, for sociological reasons, for um, looking at the history, for example, of the way in which cod or salt were eaten in some of the more famous uh, pop history books. Um, There's people who look at the production of food, either as historians or anthropologists. Um, There's a lot of ways that one can talk about food politically. I don't think um, the kind of historian who likes a story that starts at the beginning of the 19th century and ends at the end of the 19th century is going to find that in this book. I'm, the, the book jumps around in space, it jumps around in time, it's more interested in particular kinds of cookbooks or exemplary cookbooks in, for example, mid-century U.S. or pre-World War II Italy when I look at those particular cookbooks, I'm looking at what they're doing in those places. Um, And so I'm not trying to tell a story of the development of cookbooks. I'm really trying to tell a set of political actions that cookbooks participate in.
1: And you, you sort of talk about different ways that cookbooks operate essentially. Um, and, and one of the probably, um, maybe more intriguing for many people, the discussion of Julia Child, um, who, you know, changed the way America cooks, um, with her cookbook and her subsequent television show. Um, but you talk about this in terms of understanding not only what Julia Child did, but also, how come French cooking has a particular role in the United States and what she was able to sort of build on in context of understanding U.S. cooking um, and American understandings of French culture and cuisine. So if you don't mind jumping around in your own book, <laughs> can you talk about particularly Julia Child? Sure. Um,
0: part of the, the my curiosity about Julia Child is reading a lot of political scientists, for example, writing on international relations. W- we tend to be very attentive to political actors like, well, in Julia Child's time, De Gaulle and Eisenhower, right? Like, what is their relationship? What did the U.S. think of France? What sort of Debates were they having about NATO? What did that have to do with the power of the Soviet Union? That's the, the, the fundamental substructure that most political scientists think international relations is made up of. I was really curious about what Julia Child was doing to the American imaginary of France at the time she was writing and the way in which somebody like her. Well, she's, she's remembered as a person, but also her idea of what France and French cooking are is it, very well remembered in a way that your average American under the age of 50 d- might not even know who Charles de Gaulle was, or know that we had this period of intense anti-Frenchness in the United States. So in some ways, I'm interested in Julia Child because she is the more powerful international relations figure even more powerful than the President of the United States in creating the American relationship to France. It's curious though she's not somebody who is known outside of the United States people in the us uh, are a little bewildered to know to, uh, to find out how little known she is and people outside of the United States are f- fascinated that we have this, this um, celebrity figure that they've never heard of. So there's a way in which she's very much a one-sided figure in international relations. She's giving the United States a vision and a taste of what Frenchness is, but that has very little to do with the way in which the French are are or are going to perceive the United States.
1: And the reception of her cookbook also is sort of complicated in that it it is the inverse of what we usually think of now in contemporary sort of cook cooking cookbooks and cooking television, which is an entire industry um, that she wrote the book first and then she got a TV show.
0: Not only that, but the TV show helped create what we think of as public television. The, yeah. the idea that we had these public television stations, which you know for 50 years has been fairly uncontroversial normative, that, that didn't exist when she was starting off. So she, her the strength of her cookbook and its popularity drove and created a kind of televisual celebrity cooking model that really did not pre-exist her in the United States. And the people who do know Julia Child outside the United States often were looking at her to figure out, oh, how do we do a television show about cooking? What would ours, you know, what would a a Canadian show about French cookie cooking
1: look like? How how might we do that? So one of the chapters that you have um, written, Kenan, is about the idea of cookbooks as a collectivity, that they are a compilation of recipes. Um, and this goes back to sort of the early days of this format also in the United States with regard to the sort of transference of the information um, that people wrote down or typed up or put on cards, that were then not necessarily made into a published volume that a publisher then sent to press and people bought in stores, but that were compiled by community groups. And this is another place where, in the book, you talk about essentially the role of politics in cookbooks. Can you explain a little bit about how you see this complicated, sort of format, um, and how it does politics.
0: Yeah, I, I relied a lot on historians of cookbooks, and a number of them have written on community cookbooks. What I found slightly unsatisfying about many of them was that the historians writing them wanted often to talk about these cookbooks Politically, but they talked about them in ways that were, that the women writing them, for example, were engaged of acts of resistance, that they were finding their own spaces within the patriarchy that they opposed, that they were valuing their own lives. And while they certainly were doing cookbooks like this voluntarily, and they seemed to enjoy them, the idea that they were Resistant to say domestic ideology just did not appear in the cookbooks I was looking at. Um, People doing cookbooks often really love being in the kitchen and they are celebrating the kinds of things that they do there. So when these women are collectively publishing a book, they're in some ways. It, uh, encouraging or reinforcing the domestic ideology that women belong in the home. Some of the books had introductions by a church pastor saying how a woman, a woman's place was in the kitchen, cathedral. Um, they would have poems that celebrated the way that they can take care of their husbands, um, especially in the '70s and '80s. Many of these cookbooks overtly position themselves against what they called women's liberation, which they thought of as being anti-domestic, against the household, and particularly against cooking. So I ended up finding the, the dynamic, the opposition that most political scientists often fall into, which is a dualism between emancipation and oppression. It didn't, that, that didn't actually seem to be appropriate here. That these were voluntary associations that valued women's existence and that they were simultaneously celebrating domestic ideology and the positioning of women in the household um, make, means that that idea that they have an ideological um, opposition between emancipation and oppression. It just—it it didn't seem to hold. I was both intrigued by that, and that pushed my thinking about what p- politics can be in new directions, in thinking about the intensification of a community, in saying who belongs here, what do we value, what sorts of people are participants, who gets represented, how they get represented. Those all are critical in a cookbook but they don't operate on the usual dualisms that political scientists look for.
1: And, and you, you do go into this, particularly in the chapter on community, um, and as you've just highlighted, discussing the fact that the kitchen, in many ways, while we think about it now as a place of sort of domesticity and often femininity in its portrayal, that the kitchen has often been sort of thought of or considered as an apolitical space, but that what you found in terms of the research on cookbooks is that the kitchen is not in fact apolitical or unpolitical. Can you talk about how that sort of operates in our thinking, not only about sort of cooking as something that we do in a family Um, in a kitchen, but also how that translates into this sort of framework of the cookbook.
0: In um, Especially in community cookbooks, but I think in cooking writ large, the historical positioning has been that this is a kind of work and a kind of thinking and a kind of creation that is not valuable, particularly because it's associated with Women and the domestic sphere. Um, So it's intriguing to me that where a single line of a poem is copyrighted, or even the idea behind a book can be copyrighted, and you can sue somebody for that your intellectual property, recipes never can be copyrighted. They are exempt from copyright claims. The assumption is that that's a um world of the public domain that does not matter to protect creation and so the legal and ethical dimensions of what a recipe is and what a cookbook are uh, and what a cookbook is are particularly muddy that way
1: but at the same time one of the things that your research and one of the things i really found fascinating in reading through this book is the reading of the cookbooks themselves in terms of what is included and what isn't included, Um, what is sort of snuck in, um, if you will, in terms of manners and culture and what is, you know, pushed aside because of racial attitudes or um, an understanding of what is, quote, proper which gets to questions of class, questions of race, um, questions of ethnicity that you don't necessarily think about when you think, oh, I'm just going to buy, you know, this America's Best Test Kitchen cookbook.
0: <laughs> right. It's um, the the like many familial spaces, the kitchen is a place of authority and power. Um, a lot of the early... Earlier cookbooks in the, uh, of community cookbooks, the ones from the late 19th century are not intended for cooks at all. They're intended for the, how the person in the household who is overseeing all the cooks. And so they'll have lots of instructions on how to make sure that the tables are properly set, but they'll leave it up to the, say, Irish cook to actually be making the food. Uh, I found a particularly interesting part of one from the 1870s, where they were the, the authors were adamant that you watch your Irish cook as she puts as she bakes the bread, because the Irish tend to put baking soda in instead of doing the real work of kneading, and so you you have you have to watch what they do very carefully. So that that is in a cookbook where it's not even telling you how to make bread, but telling you how to discipline your domestic servant is fascinating on the other hand the creation of these cookbooks the the when a group of african-american women from the west side of Los Angeles get together and make a cookbook that speaks to their community um, that even includes wives from a um, army outpost that's over 500 miles away but include them as part of the community because that's part of what the black community in LA is in the 1930s that's a that is a very creative and collective engagement in maybe in the face of white supremacy maybe in the world in which certain food pathways become incredibly important to keep a a collective identity together.
1: And and you lead the reader in in a very um, useful way through thinking about this by setting out just at the end of the introduction to the book itself, a way to sort of understand what is and isn't present in a cookbook. Did you train yourself in this regard? I think I've trained
0: myself in reading cookbooks partially on the presumption, the the presumptions that I noticed I bring to a cookbook. Um, The way in which I think I, like most people, don't look at them from beginning to end, the way in which somebody can dip into one and think that they are reading a cookbook, even if you've only read 100th of the pages in it. Um, But also in trying to think through what sort of text a cookbook is, they're not, I, I find them particularly interesting because they're not the sort of books that we usually think of as making us do something or even encouraging us to do something. They seem more like a resource. Where even if you follow the steps exactly, it's you who is participating in the creation, that you are part of it. So I also, my training in trying to think through alternative forms of authority, alternatives to, say, law, police, or even commands, um, that I was able to see in the cookbook a different kind of writing there, uh, an invitational and creative and participatory form that I wasn't seeing, that I was looking for and not seeing in a lot of the overtly political philosophy texts, which often were telling us what to value and who to be overtly instead of inviting us to think of and experience different ways of being.
1: And, and adding into this sort of more abstract discussion of understanding what we do when we read a cookbook. You are also keen to highlight that the cookbook is not a narrative, yeah. (laughs) In in the way that we often think about not only our reading of a novel or even nonfiction, um, but you know, in watching television shows or movies, that that there's so much of our lives that we try to situate within a narrative, and a cookbook is kind of defying that. How does the cookbook defy
0: that? The form of the cookbook seems very um, common and normal to us. But if you're looking at it as a political text, it's a really unusual one. So somebody might be cooking from two different cookbooks simultaneously or in alternating ways. They may be um, looking at one for a recipe and another one for inspiration. They might be examining the kinds of things that they allow them to think. They might even be looking at a cookbook merely for pleasure right There are people who will go to bed with a cookbook and look and sort of imagine the sorts of dishes that they could at some point create even if they're never going to do that so I became very interested in what that sort of openness of form allows us to do and allows us to think in a way that a novel or a treatise or a law doesn't those are those are kinds of authority and kinds of of politics that seem unidirectional whereas a cookbook a recipe are forms of encouragement and engagement. I know lots of people who will cross out a line in a cookbook when they don't actually like cinnamon. They'll just cross that out and put something else in. That's not the way we read other books. We don't read John Locke and say, you know, I'm just going to get rid of this paragraph, but I'm still going to take, uh, and I'm going to write my own paragraph here, but I'm still going to take these ideas seriously. So there's a, we have a different relationship to what a cookbook is as making claims on us that allows us to really participate in not only the end result, but actually in remaking the text.
1: And, and in that way, cookbooks are oddly democratic, I think is part of your argument. I think,
0: I think they are profoundly democratic. I, I think that kind of authority is perhaps the most democratic form of writing that we can do because it's not completionist, it's not linear, it is not um, uh, a command, and yet it's incredibly helpful, and it's one that we actively participate in and often enjoy participating in because it helps us develop our own skills and mastery.
1: And, and we also maybe like what we eat
0: and make the stuff. <laughs> they don't They don't work very well if you don't like what you eat, although it's interesting to try a cookbook that seems alien or odd and see what you're going to like out of it. that is there's some people who are very adventurous when it comes to cookbooks and others who look for the familiar. I found that particularly interesting in the community cookbooks where some are clearly made to just stand to just be able to you know how do you make uh, ham. How do you boil an egg or how do you put spices on an egg? And others are talking about the foods that they discovered on a trip to China um, and that they want to bring back. Those are both very, in both cases, they're very American projects, but they have outlooks of about the world that are profoundly different that get embedded in these community cookbooks.
1: And and you also note that the cookbooks themselves contribute to a sort of an understanding of nationalism. When we talked a little bit about Julia Child, who does get sort of her own you know for focus in in another chapter, but that you you talk about why states need cookbooks. Can you expand upon that?
0: It was fascinating to me how many nation states, when they come into being, very quickly turned to developing a national food. I think the the first example of that I came across was Arjun Epidurai, who noted the ways in which India in its national in its national nation building stage, um developed a lot of cookbooks where a housewife could make food from all over the country. And what he um, noticed, and what I really wanted to flesh out here, is the way in which a cookbook is a perfect form for saying, this country is diverse, we contain multitudes, there's a lot of difference here, that the way that somebody in Maine cooks is different than the, the way someone in Louisiana cooks, and yet this is all the cookery of our nation. Unlike many nation-building projects which try and emphasize sameness, a cookbook is a kind of nation-building project that can emphasize difference, that it can emphasize difference within a unity.
1: And you also spend a chapter talking about sort of the overt um, sort of tastes uh, and how that that does contribute to um, a more sort of clearly enunciated politics in terms of ideology, and and you sort of take on the slow food movement and fast food. Can you I, can the, you sort uh, of yeah tease this, those out?
0: I, I think that's probably the most controversial chapter in the book, in which I. Don't exactly come out against the slow food movement, but I end up arguing that in many ways it's a reaction to a previous, well, cookbook, um, but also a previous food movement that also emerged in Italy um, that came out of the art and food movement known as futurism. So futurism was an overtly ideological and... Fellow traveler to fascism movement that emphasized speed and metal and warfare. It glorified violence. It was highly masculinized. And interestingly, futurism had a huge problem with the traditional ways that Italians ate food. They famously hated pasta because pasta they thought slowed people down, it made them. Uh, tired and stodgy, and they didn't like the fact that each um, house would bake its own bread. So they wanted mass-produced bread. They wanted bread that was exactly the same throughout Italy so that Italy could be standardized in a certain way. I could talk a little bit more about that cookbook and the intriguing things that it did, but to get back to your point about slow food, Slow food often positions itself as against the modern, that it sees itself as going back to traditions and conviviality and sitting around a table for a long time. But I note the ways in which it actually overlaps with contemporary fast food in lots of ways, that it's very mobile, that it's very Um, dependent on contemporary capitalism, that it relies on a kind of consumptive attitude toward the world. Um, I think the slow food movement has been very badly hit here in 2020 with the ways in which people are unable to travel because slow food has long depended on... um, Foreigners coming to a place and experiencing the authenticity of the food in order to justify itself. So, while I am sympathetic to some of the things that slow food does, I actually see it more as a reactive or even reactionary mo- movement against the modern world. And I see that modern world as being um, hyper identified with what the futurists were trying to do in the interwar years.
1: And, and so I would love for you to talk about the particularities and the peculiarities of understanding some of these Italian cookbooks, in particular, the one featured in this discussion. Um, because again, it sort of gets to some of these contours of understanding um, countries through their cookbooks, not necessarily through their food.
0: Italy is a great case to talk about this. Um, some political theorists like Davide Panagia have talked about the way in which what's known in Italy as the Artusi was a um, both a cookbook that most families had, as well as being the attempt to take what had been a collection of principalities and competing areas and build them into an identifiable nation state with an identifiable food. So in the past, this uh, this the process of the cookbook was to remake what was not a nation into a nation. What the futurists were trying to do was take Italy from being one kind of nation and transform it into another sort of nation. So in place of pasta, for example, they suggested salami dipped in coffee which would stimulate the senses and not fatten you up and slow you down um, they made ice cream from raw onions so that you wouldn't be overfilled by it there's a recipe in the futurist cookbook for a chicken cooked with ball bearings in it so that you taste the steel of the of gunshot and you are made more uh, warlike And then there's a lot of recipes that are about destroying the past or or biting into feminism. So they're into femininity. So there's a couple where you are essentially forming breasts out of cheeses and then destroying them. So it's not as though there's not an ideology to that cookbook. It's very aware of its ideology. It's what instead its ideology is doing, which is trying to send Italy into this uh, metallic future. I think one of the dreams that Marinetti, who was the main author of the Futurist Cookbook, had, was that with the emergence of the telephonic and the televisual, that we would end up with teletaste and telesmell, where through radio waves you could fuel and feed an entire nation and they and we could do away with the material Complexities of food itself,
1: and obviously hasn't quite come to pass
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is not a food uh I mean as interesting as these foods are they're not um they're not very desirable and and I think they are it would be a mistake to try to disidentify futurism with fascism. Marinetti really was an aspirational fascist, and I think. Instead of a, well, it's both a fast food and a fascist food that he's trying to create.
1: And, and, and again, you, you sort of have this discussion of what the sort of image of what that tastes like coming from, a, you know, a recipe. What does it taste like to eat a chicken that was made with ball bearings? Um, and it's supposed to taste like war, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's supposed to taste like battle. Um, there's other, there's other recipes that actually tell you how to behave or how to act. Some of his recipes have no food in them whatsoever. There's, there's one that is a dinner, um, where quote, where, where you're supposed to be served by five men, five women, and a neuter. And I'm quoting there. And, uh, people are basically being sprayed with scents and given pieces of cloth to touch for a couple of hours. And at the end, the dinner is over. So he's really suspicious, even of the idea of food as a, as a nutritional source.
1: Okay. (laughs) Um, One, one question that I was curious uh, about as I read through this book, and you sort of nod at the fact that you, um, you like certain foods, you like to cook, you like to eat. Um, that you made some recipes, obviously you didn't make all of them because there are many cookbooks that you read. Was there anything in particular in terms of your experience, your sensory experience and coming to this topic that stood out in your research?
0: I became, I think, a lot more curious about the range of attractive tastes for a variety of reasons. Um, I think of, there's one thing I noticed in a lot of the community cookbooks that were made by people who either were in or had experienced the depression was the way in which some of them would try and make mock foods. Um, And that's a long, that has a long history that isn't just about deprivation because of money. It may be about deprivation because of uh, your geography. So I found, for example, if you're a a cookbook from, from Alaska on how to make dishes that seem like other dishes. So instead of oysters, you would use moose brains, um, shaped like oysters, and you could tell people that they were just like oysters. Um, or you would look at Wyoming in the, uh, early, early 1900s and about 1910. And it was clear that chicken was very rare there. So one of their mock dishes was to take beef and boil it in um, pork uh, soup for about six hours. And then you could pretend that that was chicken. So I became really fascinated by the ways in which these tastes and these expectations also are transportable through what they feel like on the tongue and what they say about the kind of aspirational cook who wants to make them.
1: Um, so now that you've written a book about cookbooks, what are you working on now, Kenan? As
0: I said, I, was re- I became... My, my conception of what political action was was in some ways really transformed by understanding what... These women's collectives were doing in creating cookbooks. And so I'm trying to think through in my next book how to avoid that dualism of oppression and emancipation. What would it mean to think about forms of politics that aren't reducible to one of those two um, classes? And who would be the the theorists that we might look to writing in the past who were not engaged in those sorts of dynamics? Um, So it's made me very curious about questions of indebtedness, of questions of um, felt responsibility, of connections with others that both come out of some family relationships, but also, like, what does it mean to intensify your relationships with people that is not about, that that doesn't feel either oppressive or liberatory?
1: So when you finish this next book, will you come back on the New Books and Political Science podcast and talk to me about it?
0: Of course. This is incredibly enjoyable.
1: Thank you for joining me today, Kenan Ferguson. Um, author of Cookbook Politics, recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2020. I assume this is available at the University of Pennsylvania Press website, possibly also someplace like Boswell Book website here in Milwaukee and other independent booksellers. Anybody else you want to give a shout out to?
0: I, w- I would say, especially, I, we're recording this in both a time of uh, COVID I, um, isolation and of mass protest, I want to remind everybody that your books, your local bookstore is a uh, heart of the community. And so if you want to buy this or any other book, turn to that bookstore right away and, uh, and help support them.
1: Thank you, Kenan, for joining me today to talk about cookbook politics.
0: Thank you, Lily.